Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Guillain-Barre syndrome, or GBS, is a rare but serious autoimmune condition associated with significant morbidity and mortality. Every year, 100,000 people worldwide develop GBS, with up to 6,000 cases in the United States. While the treatment of GBS has remained relatively unchanged, recent reports of an association between COVID-19 vaccination and GBS onset has resulted in renewed interest in the disease. For today's Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds podcast, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Rachel Johnson from Mayo Clinic Health System in Mankato, Minnesota, to review common causes and symptoms of GBS, as well as the current literature describing treatment for GBS patients. Guillain-Barre syndrome, or GBS, is a rare bacterious autoimmune condition associated with significant morbidity and mortality. Recently, there have been reports of an association between GBS and vaccination for COVID-19, resulting in an increase in interest in this condition. I will be reviewing common causes and symptoms of GBS, the association of GBS and vaccines, and the current literature describing treatment for patients with GBS. Of my learning objectives listed here, they are to recall common symptoms of GBS, to describe the association between COVID-19 vaccines and GBS, than to identify appropriate treatment for a patient with GBS. I will start by reviewing a patient case. EJ is a 48-year-old male who presents to the emergency room with a chief complaint of weakness. He reports that this started in his legs, but has now progressed to his arms, and that is, it is on both sides of his body. He has no significant past medical history and is not on any medications. As far as the history of his illness, he had nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea three weeks ago. He says that these lasted for about 24 hours and then resolved, and he had no further symptoms until he developed this weakness about two days ago. When asked about other symptoms, he reports feeling a sensation of pins and needles in his feet and that there is a deep aching pain in his back and his legs. Upon physical exam, absent deep tendon reflexes, as well as a decreased sensation to the bilateral feet are noted. I have his vitals listed here. Of note, his blood pressure and heart rate were elevated, but his respiratory rate was normal. The condition was first described in 1916 by George Guion, Jean Alexander Beret, and Andre Stroll, when they noted an acute and progressive limb weakness in two soldiers in northern France during World War I. Guion and Beret quickly named this Notre Syndrome, which stands for Our Syndrome. This effectively cut Stroll out of the name. Clinicians subsequently began referring to this as Landry-Guillain-Barre syndrome, as Landry had described similar manifestations. The condition is now known as Guillain-Barre syndrome, or GBS. About 100,000 people worldwide develop GBS each year. Of these cases, 3,000 to 6,000 occur within the U.S. each year. The estimated incidence is 1 to 2 cases per 100,000 people worldwide each year. As is the case with many diseases, Incidence increases with age. However, unlike many other autoimmune disorders, GBS is more common in men than women, 
with three men being affected for every two women who are affected. There are several different subtypes of DBS, and these are based on where the immune system attack occurs. On the right-hand side of the slide, I have a picture of a neuron. At the top of the cell, you'll see the cell body. The axon extends out from the cell body and serves to transport the nerve signal. The myelin sheath then covers the axon and provides a layer of electrical insulation. The pathophysiology of DBS is complex, varies by subtype, and is poorly understood. One thing that we do know is that the immune system is involved in causing neuronal cell injury. In the demyelinating forms of DBS, this injury occurs at the myelin sheath. The most common subtype of demyelinating GBS is known as acute inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, or AIDP. This is the most common subtype of GBS, particularly in North America where it accounts for about 90% of GBS cases. The other place where the, axle, the neuronal injury can occur is at the axon. There are two major subtypes of GBS mediated by this axonal injury. These include acute motor axonal neuropathy, or AMAN, and acute motor sensory axonal neuropathy, or AMSAN. AMAN accounts for 5 to 10% of GBS cases. Typically, there are no pain or sensory symptoms here, only motor symptoms. The subtype is also strongly associated with Campylobacter jejuni infections. AMSAN is very similar to AMAN, with the exception that sensory symptoms predominate here. The subtype also typically has a very severe course. There are a number of other subtypes that I do not have listed here. These include Miller-Fisher syndrome and Bickerstaff encephalitis. Typically, GBS is preceded by an infection or some other sort of immune stimulation. It's thought that this immune stimulation induces an immune response that then targets the peripheral nerves. Campylobacter jejuni is the most commonly associated pathogen with GBS. It's estimated to be involved in anywhere from 25 to 50 percent of GBS cases. This pathogen is commonly associated with food poisoning and has a higher frequency in Asian countries. Other common causes of GBS include cytomegalovirus, influenza A virus, Epstein-Barr virus, and Zika virus. There's also been an association reported between multiple different vaccines and GBS. However, whether or not vaccines are a true cause of GBS remains unclear. Any of these pathogens involved in causing GBS may cause the patient to experience symptoms of a preceding infection, with two-thirds of symptoms reporting symptoms of a respiratory or a GI infection prior to the onset of their GBS symptoms. After the preceding infection, symptoms of DBS typically arise within four weeks. The most common symptom at presentation is a rapidly progressing bilateral weakness. This weakness is often very severe and can cause paralysis. It's typically ascending, starting in the distal lower extremities, then progressing upwards towards the arms, and in some cases to the diaphragm. When this weakness starts to affect the diaphragm, respiratory insufficiency requiring mechanical ventilation may occur. About 25% of patients with GBS will require mechanical ventilation at some point in their hospital course. Other common symptoms include decreased or absent deep tendon reflexes, pain, sensory symptoms which are commonly manifested as paresthesias, and cranial nerve involvement which is frequently manifested as a weakness of the facial muscles. Autonomic dysfunction is also very common. 
These patients often have very labile heart rates and blood pressures, which can be very difficult to manage. The symptoms of DBS are key for diagnosis, as the diagnosis is largely based on the clinical features. There's no one specific biomarker that can definitively rule in or rule out GBS. The diagnostic features are divided into those that are required for a diagnosis, those that are strongly supportive of a diagnosis, and then those that would cast doubt on a diagnosis. Required features include a progressive weakness in the arms and legs, as well as decreased or absent deep tendon reflexes. The strongly supportive features are listed in order of importance. The most important feature is the timing of the progression. Symptoms that develop rapidly but then cease to progress within four weeks into the illness are strongly suggestive of DBS. Other strongly supportive symptoms include symmetry of signs and symptoms, sensory symptoms, cranial nerve involvement, and autonomic dysfunction. Features that would cast doubt on a diagnosis include persistent asymmetry of symptoms and a fever at the onset of symptoms. There are several different components of a clinical workup that can aid in the diagnosis, including the CSF analysis. Typically with GBS, you'll find a normal white blood cell count. This can help to differentiate GBS from other conditions such as Lyme disease or HIV. High protein levels are also characteristic of GBS. Early on in presentation, protein levels may be normal, but by the second week of symptoms, about 90% of patients with GBS will have elevated protein levels. Nerve tests such as electromyography and nerve conduction studies can be done. This would help to confirm the diagnosis as well as to classify by subtype, but they are not required for a diagnosis. You may also look at serum studies, including testing for serology for Campylobacter jejuni, cytomegalovirus, or Epstein-Barr virus. You may test for antibodies such as GM1 or GD1A, as these are commonly found in the axonal forms of DBS, so they can help to classify by subtype. Then you may consider testing for HIV in at-risk patients as well. DBS does have a fairly typical course that can aid in the diagnosis. Within one to two weeks of that immune stimulation, you get an acute and rapid progression of limb weakness. Within two to four weeks, symptoms typically reach their peak. After this peak, symptoms are stable for a variable duration until the onset of recovery. This recovery period is very variable. Some patients may recover within months, whereas others may take years to fully recover. It is important to diagnose GBS early on in the course in order to ensure that patients have the best possible prognosis. Mortality rates in Europe and North America have been reported at anywhere from 3 to 7%. About 80 to 90% of patients will make a full recovery, but that leaves 10 to 20% of patients who are disabled after one year. Residual deficits include an impaired motor ability, pain, and fatigue. The Erasmus GBS outcome score can be used to help determine the prognosis of GBS patients two weeks after admission and predicts the ability to walk at six months. Components of the EGOS score that would indicate a poor prognosis include advanced age, prolonged mechanical ventilation, and a high disability at peak of symptoms. The Erasmus GBS Respiratory Insufficiency Scale, or EGRIS, can be used at hospital admission and predicts the probability of respiratory insufficiency within one week of hospital admission. Components of the EGR score include the severity of weakness, as determined by the MRC sum scale, the onset of weakness, 
from the presence of facial or bulbar weakness. I have the GBS disability score listed here. This is a widely accepted scoring system that can be used to assess the functional status of patients with GBS. This is important as many of the trials evaluating patients with GBS use this scale or a similar adaptation. Score of zero would be considered the best and would indicate a healthy patient. Then a score of six would be the worst and would indicate a deceased patient. That brings me to my first assessment question. To answer this question, you can respond at pollev.com slash mayorx or text mayorx to 22333. The question is, we'll go back to our patient case. question is, which of EJ's symptoms are consistent with the diagnosis of DBS? Options are bilateral weakness, areflexia, paresthesias, or all of the above. Okay, it looks like as the results are coming in, the majority of people are saying all of the above. This is the correct answer. Progressive weakness and hyporeflexia or areflexia are both required for the diagnosis of GBS. Paresthesias or sensory symptoms would be strongly supportive of a diagnosis. This patient also had pain and symptoms of a preceding infection, which would also suggest GBS. Now, there are multiple different vaccines that have an association with GBS. I will now review some of these associations. Influenza vaccine is commonly associated with GBS. This started in 1976 when there was an eight-fold increase in the risk of GBS following vaccination. The estimated risk of one additional case of GBS per 100,000 100, doses administered. They determined that a causal relationship was likely with this vaccine. However, most studies have failed to establish a relationship between the seasonal influenza vaccine of today and GBS. There were two notable exceptions. From these studies, ACIP and the Institute of Medicine reported a risk of one case of GBS per million persons vaccinated. There have also been cases of GBS reported after infection with influenza as well. Overall, the risk of GBS following vaccination for influenza remains very low. And the benefits of influenza vaccination continue to outweigh the risks of vaccination. One situation where influenza vaccination would be contraindicated is in patients that have a history of GBS within six weeks of influenza vaccination who are not at high risk of influenza complications. Recently, there have been reports of an association between vaccination for herpes zoster and GBS. Some background on zoster vaccines. The Zoster Vaccine Live, or ZVL, also known by the trade name of Zostavax, was FDA approved in 2006. In 2017, the FDA approved the recombinant Zoster Vaccine, or RZV, also known by the trade name of Shingrix. ACIP currently recommends giving two doses of that recombinant Zoster Vaccine, two to six months apart, in all adults ages 50 years of age and above. A retrospective case series cohort study published November 1st of 2021 evaluated the risk of GBS in patients following the recombinant zoster vaccination and compared it to that of the zoster vaccine live. They included about 850,000 patients that were vaccinated with the recombinant zoster vaccine and about 1.8 million patients that were vaccinated with the zoster vaccine live. All of the patients included were within 42 days of zoster vaccination and were 65 years of age and above. What they found was that there were significantly more cases of DBS associated with that recombinant zoster vaccine 
compared to the Zoster vaccine live. They estimated a risk of three additional cases of GBS per million doses of the recombinant Zoster vaccine administered. Overall, while they did find an elevated risk of, the rec of GBS following that recombinant Zoster vaccine, the risk of GBS remains low. Though based on these results, ACIP did not make any change to their current recommendation regarding herpes zoster vaccination. There have also been reports of DBS following vaccination for COVID-19. Table on this slide compares the incidence of DBS between the Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, Moderna, and Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines. Data for all of the vaccines with the exception of AstraZeneca is based on Bayer's reporting through June 30th of 2021. AstraZeneca vaccine, the data is from the European Union's Utah Vigilance Database with reporting through June 27th of 2021. Of note, the AstraZeneca vaccine is a two-dose vaccine. It's approved for use in other parts of the world, though it is not currently approved for use in the United States. What they found was that the risk of DBS is much higher with the adenovirus vector vaccines, such as Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, and the mRNA vaccines, such as Moderna and Pfizer. Now we will take a closer look at the association between GBS and that Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccine specifically. Bayer's reports from February of 2021 to July of 2021 were analyzed. As of July 24th of 2021, there were 130 reports of presumptive GBS following vaccination with that Johnson & Johnson vaccine. They found an incidence of one case of DBS per 100,000 doses administered. The table on the left-hand side of the slide describes the demographics and characteristics of these cases. The median age was 56, with 86% of cases occurring in that 18 to 64 age group. Cases were slightly more common in men than women, which is typical for GBS. The majority of patients were hospitalized, and about one-third had a life-threatening case of GBS. The median time to onset of DBS was 13 days from vaccination, with 81% of cases occurring within three weeks of vaccination and 95% of cases occurring within six weeks. Overall, the risk of DBS following vaccination with that Johnson & Johnson vaccine, while it is elevated, it remains low. The current recommendation is that if patients have any history of DBS, they should be vaccinated with an mRNA COVID vaccine, such as Moderna or Pfizer but a history of GBS would not be considered a contraindication to vaccination for COVID-19 overall. That leads me to my next assessment question. Which of the following COVID vaccines have been associated with GBS? It looks like the majority of people are saying Johnson & Johnson, which is correct. Well, there have been reports of GBS following vaccination with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, there has not been an proven association like there has been with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Now I will move on to the management of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Treatment options for this condition are very limited, and there are no FDA-approved treatment options. In practice, management typically consists of supportive care along with either plasma exchange or IVIG. Given the limited available treatment options, supportive care is a key component of management. Given the rapid progression of GBS, as well as the significant morbidity and mortality, all patients with GBS should be hospitalized. About 25% of patients with GBS will require mechanical ventilation at some point in their course. This is often prolonged, and many patients will require a tracheostomy. 
Other components of supportive care include management of autonomic disturbances, as these patients often have very labile heart rates and blood pressures, VTE prophylaxis with heparin or anoxaparin, multimodal therapy, which includes but is not limited to physical, occupational, and speech therapy, and then pain management. About 90% of patients with DBS will experience pain, so pain management is a key component here. Oftentimes, multiple different pain relievers with multiple different mechanisms of action will be required in order to obtain adequate pain control. Options for pain control include opioids, NSAIDs, and then for the neuropathic component, either gabapentin or carbamazepine. Several trials have evaluated the use of gabapentin and carbamazepine in mechanically ventilated ICU patients with DBS. What they found was that both agents significantly reduced overall pain score as well as fentanyl consumption when they were compared with placebo. So both gabapentin and carbamazepine are reasonable options for pain control in GBS. Beyond supportive care, there are two main treatment options for patients with DBS. These options are plasma exchange and IV immunoglobulin, or IVIG. Neither option is FDA approved, so the use of both in GBS is considered off-label. Plasma exchange was the first proven immunotherapy for GBS. It's currently recommended for GBS patients who are in the acute phase of illness who are unable to walk independently. The way it works is by removing antibodies and inflammatory or other pathogenic components from plasma, then replacing it with a fluid. Often this fluid is either albumin or a crystalloid colloid combination. It's often administered as five sessions over seven to 14 days, though in practice it is most common to give plasma exchange every other day, as this allows for the redistribution of pathogenic agents. Adverse effects are typically minimal, but can include blood pressure alterations. Along with antibodies and pathogenic agents, plasma exchange also removes some medications from circulation as well. The literature regarding medication removal by plasma exchange is fairly limited. It is comprised mostly of small case reports for specific medications. There are certain medication characteristics that are associated with increased removal by plasma exchange. Medications that have a small volume of distribution, the high degree of protein binding, are more likely to be removed by plasma exchange. Now, when you have a patient that is receiving plasma exchange, there are several things you should consider in regards to their medications. The first is whether or not there's literature regarding the patient's specific medications available. If this specific medication guidance is available, it should be used. The second is timing. Medications should be given after plasma exchange whenever feasible. At a very minimum, you should avoid giving medications in the one to two hours immediately prior to as well as during plasma exchange. Therapeutic drug monitoring is available. It should be used to confirm that drug levels are within therapeutic range. Lastly, you should monitor patient condition closely to evaluate for signs of increased or decreased medication efficacy. As far as specific medications, ACE inhibitors should be held for at least 24 hours prior to plasma exchange. The reason for this is that plasma exchange leads to an increased amount of bradykinin. ACE inhibitors then prevent the breakdown of bradykinin. So when you're giving the two together, you get an excess of bradykinin. This can lead to hypotension, bradycardia, and shortness of breath. Of note, angiotensin receptor blockers do not interfere with the breakdown of bradykinin, 
So they do not have the same interaction here. Now I will go into the benefits of plasma exchange. Cochrane meta-analysis evaluated plasma exchange versus supportive care in patients with DBS. The primary outcome was the proportion of patients who could walk with aid at four weeks. Plasma exchange did show a significant benefit for this outcome. Plasma exchange was also associated with significantly less ventilator dependency at four weeks and significantly more full-strength muscle recovery at one year. Despite these benefits, there was no difference in overall mortality, and plasma exchange was associated with a significantly higher number of relapses after one year. Overall, there was no significant differences in adverse events as well. The primary conclusion of this trial was that plasma exchange was associated with a significant benefit in patients with DBS. While the benefits of plasma exchange in patients with DBS is well established, the optimal number of plasma exchange sessions is not. The number of plasma exchange sessions for DBS patients was arbitrarily set at five, despite there being minimal data to support this. A randomized multi-center trial sought to evaluate the optimal number of plasma exchange sessions. This trial was run from January of 1986 to March of 1993. It included 566 patients with DBS who had an onset of motor signs and symptoms within the last four weeks. Patients were classified based on their disease severity, then randomized to a particular number of plasma exchange sessions based on their severity. The primary outcome was the median time to walk with assistance. Of note, this was not relevant for patients with mild GBS, as they were able to walk with assistance at baseline before any treatment had even been started. Relevant secondary outcomes included the rate of full-strength muscle recovery at one year and the median time to hospital discharge. What they found was that for patients with mild GBS, two plasma exchange sessions were superior to none. And for the rate of full-strength muscle recovery at one year, the percentage of patients that achieved this outcome was numerically higher in patients that received two plasma exchange sessions, though this did not reach statistical significance. Two plasma exchange sessions was also associated with a significantly shorter time to hospital discharge. For patients with moderate GBS, they found that four plasma exchange sessions were superior to two. They found that four plasma exchange sessions was associated with a significantly shorter time to walk with assistance, significantly more full-strength muscle recovery at one year, and a significantly shorter time to hospital discharge. For patients with severe GBS, they found that four plasma exchange sessions were not inferior to six. So there was no significant benefit associated with those two additional plasma exchange sessions. There was no significant difference for, between the two groups for any of the outcomes. Overall, complications occurred at similar rates between all the groups, with the exception of blood pressure instability, which occurred at an increasing frequency with an increasing number of plasma exchange sessions. While this trial does provide some guidance as to what the optimal number of plasma exchange sessions is, five plasma exchange sessions are still often completed in practice. The other treatment commonly used in practice for GBS is IVIG. Some common brand names include Octagam, Privagen, and GammaGuard. Like other GBS treatments, IVIG is also not FDA approved for GBS, so use is considered off-label here. It's currently recommended in GBS patients who are unable to walk independently. The recommended dose is 0.4 grams per kilo daily for five days.
Several mechanisms have been proposed. These include a blockade of FC receptors on macrophages, which prevents an antibody-targeted attack on myelin, neutralization of antibodies involved in the immune system attack, and then prevention of complement activation. Overall, IBID is very well tolerated and adverse effects, are, adverse effects are minimal. Those that do occur are typically infusion-related and can include anaphylaxis, headache, myalgia, and transient hypotension. You can pre-medicate with acetaminophen or diphenhydramine to prevent these reactions. There are no trials comparing IBID to placebo in adults. This is likely because IBIG was developed after plasma exchange had already been proven effective for GBS. While there are no trials comparing IBIG to placebo in adults, there are trials comparing IBIG to plasma exchange. Cochrane meta-analysis evaluated the use of IVIG versus plasma exchange for patients with GBS. The large majority of patients were treated within 14 days of symptom onset and were unable to walk independently. So they had a GBS disability score of three and above. I've included the GBS disability score again here for your reference, as this is a key component of many of the trials evaluating patients with GBS. Just a reminder, score of zero would be considered the best, and would indicate a healthy patient, whereas a score of six would be the worst and would indicate a deceased patient. The primary outcome of the study was the change in disability grade after four weeks. Patients in the plasma exchange group improved by an average of 0.86 points on the GBS disability score. There was no significant difference between IVIG and plasma exchange for this outcome. There was also no significant difference in the number of patients who improved by one or more disability grade after four weeks, or in death or disability after 12 months, or in treatment-related adverse effects. Though hemodynamic insufficiency was more common with the plasma exchange group, and infusion-related adverse events were more common with IVIG. And these included fever and shortness of breath. While there was no significant difference in adverse effects between the two groups, Significantly more patients discontinued treatment with plasma exchange when compared to IVIG. The overall conclusion of this meta-analysis was that IVIG is not inferior to plasma exchange for the treatment of patients with GBS. A more recent study sought to evaluate healthcare utilization outcomes among patients with GBS treated with IVIG or plasma exchange. A retrospective cohort study of GBS patients identified based on ICD-9 code was completed from 2002 to 2014. The data was obtained from insurance records in the United States. 6,642 records were evaluated. Of these, 2,637 received plasma exchange and 4,005 received IVIG. Study found that IVIG was associated with a significantly shorter length of hospital stay when compared to plasma exchange found a mean length of hospital stay of 10.24 days with IVIG versus 17.78 days with plasma exchange. IVIG was also associated with a significantly lower rate of death as well as significantly lower total hospitalization cost. These results do differ from what has previously been reported in the literature. This is a retrospective study, so I would not make the definitive conclusion that IVIG is superior to plasma exchange based on this study alone. However, in practice, 
IVIG is typically preferred over plasma exchange. The reason for this is that IVIG is much easier to administer. Plasma exchange requires a special machine, specially trained personnel. It's much more difficult overall. Though this study does further support the use of IVIG as a first-line option in patients with GBS. While both plasma exchange and IVIG do have proven benefits in patients with GBS, there are some treatments whose benefits remain unproven. Given the inflammatory component of GBS, corticosteroids have been trialed as a treatment option. However, available data suggests that corticosteroids do not have any benefit in GBS. Cochrane meta-analysis evaluated the use of corticosteroids in patients with GBS. The primary outcome was a change in disability grade at four weeks. There was no significant difference between corticosteroids and control for this outcome. There was also no significant difference in the number of patients who improved by one or more disability grade after four weeks or in death or disability after one year. The overall conclusion of this meta-analysis was that corticosteroids do not have any benefit in GBS and should not be used to treat patients with GBS. Given the limited available treatment options for GBS, there is a need for more treatment options. Eculizumab, which has a brand name of Solaris, is a complement inhibitor that has been shown to be effective in other complement-mediated disorders such as atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome and nocturnal hemoglobinuria. A phase two randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial included 34 patients with moderate to severe GBS. They were randomized in a two-to-one ratio to IVIG plus eculizumab or IVIG plus placebo. All patients received IVIG at a dose of 0.4 grams per kilo daily for five days. Patients randomized to eculizumab received a dose of 900 milligrams IV once a week for four weeks. The primary outcome of the study was the ability to walk independently at week four. Patients in the eculizumab group were numerically more likely to achieve this outcome. However, this did not reach statistical significance. There was no significant difference between the two groups for improvement by one functional grade at week four. And patients in the eculizumab group were significantly more likely to have the ability to run at week 24. The overall conclusion of this trial was that while eculizumab did not reach statistical significance for the primary outcome, might still have a benefit when given in addition to IVID for patients with moderate to severe GBS. There is currently an ongoing phase three trial that's evaluating the use of eculizumab in patients with GBS. The expected completion is February of 2022. Brings me to my last assessment question. Our patient EJ is diagnosed with GBS upon admission. On day two of his hospital stay, he is intubated and transferred to the ICU. Which of the following options are appropriate treatments? Options are IVIG at a dose of 0.6 grams per kilo daily for three days, IVIG at a dose of 0.4 grams per kilo daily for five days, five plasma exchange sessions over 10 days, or ANC or BNC. It looks like the majority are saying B and C. So IVIG and five sessions of plasma exchange over 10 days. This is the correct answer. The typical dose of IVIG is 0.4 grams per kilo daily for five days. And typically five sessions of plasma exchange are completed over 10 days.
So in summary, DBS is a rare but serious autoimmune condition that commonly presents as a rapidly progressing, ascending bilateral weakness. Though the incidence is low, there has been an association proven between DBS and the Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccine. Because of this, mRNA COVID vaccines, such as Pfizer or Moderna, are recommended for patients that have a history of DBS. Treatment options for DBS are very limited. Current options are IVIG and plasma exchange. And in randomized trials, both have shown to be equally effective for the treatment of DBS. And then a multidisciplinary approach to rehabilitation is recommended. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.